0: Welcome to Save What You Love. I'm Mark Titus. Today's conversation, I get to hang out with my friend Joseph Rosano, who is an incredible artist who lives up in the Skagit Valley of northern Washington State. Joe is an accomplished spay fly fisherman. In fact, he was there right at the very beginning of the spay craze, for those of you who understand and are into that sort of thing. And more importantly, Joe has got an incredibly ambitious and beautiful art project underway. It's called School. And we get to be a small part of that with our team here at Ava's Wild in that we're kicking off a three-day global event with a screening of my documentary, The Wild, tomorrow, Tuesday, May 18th at 10 a.m. Pacific time. Head on over to our social media pages at thewildfilm or at Ava's Wild to check out and register for this special screening. Following the screening for the next couple days, there's going to be glass blowing across the world, virtually and all connected as a part of this much bigger art project called School. I'm gonna let Joe explain it to you. It's complicated, it's beautiful, it's pushing the needle forward on what we need to do to raise awareness to save our wild salmon stocks. Hope you enjoy the show today. If you dig this show, please consider giving us a rating on Apple Podcasts and write a review. It really helps boost our performance. And with that, I present to you Joe Rossano. Take care and see you next time. Joseph Rosano, welcome.
1: Thank you. It's great to be here, man.
0: I am so glad we get to hang out today. And um, we're going to have a deep dive into the meandering pool in the river here soon enough. But I want to get to the exciting stuff first. What's going on next week and how do we participate?
1: Well, the, uh, the Salmon School is growing next week. It kicks off with you. And Samination doing a, um, a presentation of the wild and sort of setting the stage for the world. Um, we'll then make fish virtually as part of the Glass Art Society's annual conference, um, beginning uh, on the 19th and running through the 21st. Um, so, yeah, we we'll at the Museum of Glass. We'll be Norway, Japan, Australia. It's going to be great. And you can go to the Salmon School website uh, or you can go to Ava's Wild and learn
0: about where. That's great. So um, if I'm understanding you correctly, you're going to be blowing glass live, of course, virtually. You'll be actually doing it, but people can watch virtually. And then there's going to be actual people blowing glass at these various locations all over the world. And we can watch that, too. Is that right?
1: Yeah, we have partner studios in Norway. Uh, um, Wiltshire, England, Northern Ireland, uh, Australia, Japan, Brooklyn, North Carolina, and Tacoma. And each one of those studios will be inviting artists and scientists in to make make fish to enlarge the school. Uh, Those fish will then be sent back to me. I'll silver them. And if all goes well, And we tell a great story. Hopefully this will be the backdrop for the Global Climate Change Summit, uh, the United Nations Global Climate Change Summit in Glasgow this November. So that's what we're all working towards. It's an intermediate goal. And then uh, the exhibit will go to Museum of Glass for next next fall.
0: Well, that's incredibly cool. And uh, I am humbled to be a small part of this thing. And we'll talk a little bit more about how we all got connected. But Um, let's go to the beginning of this thing. Tell us your story. How did you come into the work that you do? And what, what is it about this work that you do that keeps you going and, and keeps your fire lit day after day?
1: Well, it's, uh, it's really quite simple. Um, I grew up in a family where my, my, my father was an outdoorsman. He was also a scientist and, um, most of my life was spent viewing the world using the scientific process, and um, you know, sort of, sort of observing and trying to understand why things happen in the way they happen in, in repeatable ways. And uh, I thought, you know, if I can make art that talks about this thing that I love, which is the natural world, and yet do it in such a way where it isn't necessarily accusatory and negative. It just sort of, you know, it sort of, it sort of pulls you in in some way, whether it be curiosity or beauty. Um, Yet it delivers some um, truth through science where it's not, you know, just an impassioned plea from the artist. It's truly validated. Um, I felt that I could merge the, the, the two disciplines. Um, And I don't know. I think, I think it's something I have been doing in every facet of my life for a very long time. And it's just evolved to this state now. Um, Most of what I do now is giant collaborations. And I think that I can thank Dale Chihuly for having, you know, run the glass studio during the Chihuly over Venice project where I had to work with thousands of people quite literally in factories around the world. And, um, it was um, it was inspiring to have teams of people um, come together for a common goal and I, I certainly feel like a lot of that's happening in the work that we've been doing together and in what's happening around salmon today so that has been you know sort of a culmination of, of my my evolution in my personal practice
0: we're gonna hone in on salmon here in just a second but your art is gorgeous and it involves all kinds of different subjects and all kinds of different mediums. Can you give us um, a bit of a thumbnail of what your art looks and feels like and what kind of mediums you use?
1: Yes. Uh, I,
0: I make, I
1: make assemblages. So behind me on the wall is an assemblage. There's this glass salmon, there's a Winchester saw blade, there are pennies from the first minted to the last minted, and they decrease in size as we move forward in history. They're all on the backdrop of a single-piece center cut of, of a Douglas fir tree. And this assemblage is, uh, is a, a bot- botanical timeline juxtaposed by a financial timeline, juxtaposed by the object of their demise and the thing that's missing is the fish, hence it's transparency. So, so, I mean, I can look back and you can see the fish up there. So in, in my practice now, this piece is about 20, 23 years old. In my practice now, it's not just a panel that's telling that story. It's an entire gallery space. And, and rather than it just being me telling that story, I have somehow evolved a successful way into bringing a lot of people into telling that story. I believe that if a lot of people tell the same story about nature and they do so in a beautiful way, then art has the ability to make a real change.
0: Totally agree. And I know this is the confluence where we find each other. So speaking of, um, we both are obsessed with and have our roots deeply entrenched in fishing, uh, how did fishing in various forms, but especially, uh, with a spay rod and, and a fly inform the work that you do and, uh, and how does it carry through right now in, you know, a, a certainly a, um, a aesthetic, but also in kind of an emotional heart wrenching way as well.
1: Well, how does use, how does fishing inform my, my work? Um, You know, this is, this could be a really long story. I've been out here. We have time. I've been out here since 1987. And uh, when I arrived in 1987, there was no one using, well, there were a couple of people that were using double-handed rods. And um, I began working at Patrick's Fly Shop. And one day I was sitting in the shop. God, these things are emotional. I can't believe I'm getting emotional. (laughs) But I was sitting in the shop one day, and this gentleman kept coming into the shop. And, you know, he um, would be there on a Friday and he would talk to me about steelhead fishing. And I was a young guy and I didn't know anything about steelhead fishing. Um, So I was intrigued. Um, and I was working for William Morris, uh, up here at the Pilchuck Glass School and then at Patrick's on Friday and sometimes Saturday. So I'd see him on Friday. And, uh, this one particular Friday, the owner of the fly shop comes in and he hears Bob talking to me about how to catch steelhead. This guy's name is Bob. And, um, so he walks in and he says, hi, Bob. And then he Goes over to the cash register and he's acting like he's quite busy. Bob gets up and he says, "Joe, I'll see you next week when I'm back in this area." Well, this gentleman was all I knew is his name was Bob and that he was a heating and ventilation inspector for the for the city of Seattle. So he leaves and Jim says to me, "Do you know who that was?" I said, "Yeah, that was Bob. He's been coming in for the last you know two months, telling me how to steal that fish," and and he goes. That was Bob Strobel. So for those of you who are maybe listening to this podcast, Bob Strobel had his, uh, Bob Strobel is a, is, is a renowned steelhead fisherman and Bob decided that he wanted his wife to go steelhead fishing with him. He was also really good friends with Jimmy Green who invented the light ferrule, ferrule and was a, you know, a key figure in Fenwick um, and then ultimately in the Sage Rod Company. And, Bob's wife couldn't cast, so they made a 12-foot double-handed rod for her. This was the first double-handed rod made by, you know, somebody connected to this Skagit scene ever. And um, ultimately, what happened is Joanne, Bob's wife, used that rod very little because it ushered in this entire thing that we now know as gadget casting the whole, the whole scene. And um, I was very fortunate that um, I also became a member of uh, uh, Washington Steelhead Fly Fishers, which was the club that was started by Bob for a bunch of steelhead fly fishing outcasts. And I was taken underneath Bob's wing um, very early on in my career uh, as an artist and as a fly fisherman. I was actually working as an artist at that time. So, um, you know, so as far as double handed rods and as far as what's happened here on the West Coast, informing my life you know that that being in a rainforest and walking through a rainforest to access the river and um you know the color of the light going through you know blasting through the moss that's wet um you know the 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 dark duff on the ground and and you know the the sun coming off of uh off of um snow-covered mountains and then reflecting off of the water and walking up the beach with a friend of mine who's never been on the Skagit or the sock before, you know, um, all of those things shape this cold, clear thing that I'm trying to represent to people. I want it to be this dark, beautiful, clear thing that is undeniable. And I use mirror in my work because it reflects ourselves and it reflects that sort of gem of an idea. Um, So I could keep rambling on it, but that sort of puts a bunch of those things together for you.
0: Well, I, I love the visual you're painting for us and um, just dear listener for you who want a kind of a macro view of where we're talking about, we're, we're talking about, washington state what is now known as washington state in the upper left corner of the u.s and um we're talking about specifically the skagit and the sock river systems which are about an hour and a half north of seattle and flow through uh the traditional homelands and the current homelands of the sock seattle and the upper skagit tribe and um It's a particularly beautiful place that I am now spending a lot more of my life there, uh, as you know, Joe. And um, you did a really wonderful job of kind of um, laying that, that image work out for us. What is it about the connection with this anadromous fish, with this beautiful being that gives its life up for life to continue. What is it that about that connection in particular with the mechanics of fishing and, and uh, spay fishing in, in a fine point on it?
1: What is the connection between
0: fishing and what specifically? I'm looking at, uh, what what, what is the, con- what is it about this connection with fish through a thin line that, motivates you and your art, but also brings this very real sense of place and being and connection when you're fishing the sock in the Seattle and the, sorry, the, the sock and the Skagit.
1: So the connection is the water. You would think it's the fish, but it's the water because you see you're standing in the water. You're of water, you know. Um, we we you know we are surrounded by things that are dependent on it. On it, your line is moving through the water, and you're hoping that something that's also in the water with you will intercept it. It may be a steelhead, it may be a dolly Varden it may be some other you know creature. It may be a stick, but there's a hope that comes with. Swinging your, your line through the through the water, and most of the time when you fish for steelhead, especially when you're fishing in Puget Sound and um, coastal steelhead, uh, you know the in, in the winter time in particular, um, the your interaction or your encounters are pretty low. So if you are not in love with what's surrounding you, this temperate rainforest. Um, you won't be a steelhead fisherman for very long. You won't be a salmon fisherman for very long. And for me, um, you know, I spent a lot of my youth in the Catskill Mountains. Um, The quality, there's a certain time of year where the green, the temperature of the green in the spring is the same, whether you're in a temperate rainforest, whether you're on a, you know, whether you're in a field in Ireland or whether you are, in the Catskill mountains. And, um, I think that I have always been most comfortable when
0: I'm being bathed in that green. I feel you. And I, I share every bit of sentiment that you just dredged up there. Um, it is so much about being connected to the water and the water that's moving off the mountain and dripping from the tree tops and the tree tips. And um, it is less about catching than it is connecting. And uh, what a, what a joy that is. Well, this I know informed in great part your, I think your most current and most massive piece of art that you are working as a living project right now Uh, called School, and I've been lightly tethered to this for a few years now, thanks to um, meeting you um, in person a couple years ago at the Tacoma Tacoma Museum of Glass. What is this project? How did it come about, and where are we with it right now? So the project really is born
1: out of the Skagit River. Um, I... I, uh, as I said earlier, I've been here since 1987, and I live um, in Arlington, Washington, I, 35 miles from Darrington. Uh, and I co- you know, and I and I and I drive to Darrington along the uh, north fork of the Stillaguamish, which was uh, written about by Zane Grey and "Tales of Freshwater Fishing" and by Roderick Haig Brown. Uh, I live in a steelhead holy land, um, and that makes my skin prickly right now. Just saying it, I'm surrounded by and I'm surrounded by what was a temperate rainforest, and in some places remains a temperate rainforest. School is designed to show the world how a group of people can come together And how stakeholders that might not otherwise sit at the table will work together to make something beautiful, making an object of art with a community that acts as um, a bright, shiny object, a hope that we can make a difference, which is what school is. It's a series of mirrors made by hundreds of people across the globe. Um, And, it's composed of what we hope will be over 2,500 uh, blown glass fish. So one would go into a studio and um, participate in this, in this making process by working with glass makers who've gifted their studio to this project, hence this message to the world. Um, the goal was to start out that way and to pull in scientists and indigenous people to tell their story. So this, this, this growing school of fish becomes this growing message. And what's happened, um, thanks in part to, to you and to some others like Shane Anderson and, and, and um, Derek Klein, is this piece has been documented and that's precipitated involvement by Chris Mayer and the Smithsonian and Joan Venture to really enhance the citizen science component to it. So this is really a multimedia performance of science merging with art, merging with awareness. And, um, I, all I can say is I understand that there is a giant interconnectedness in the world, you know, um, as we understand the importance of biodiversity and how things are built on top of one another. Um, it it be it, it becomes confusing for some, but for me, it just seems so normal. And so the goal with this project is has been to grow this sort of diversity through art, science, community. And uh, at this point now, our community has grown to include the Atlantic Salmon Trust, uh, the Missing Salmon Alliance, the Wild Salmon Center. Trout Unlimited, studios across the globe, universities, all of whom are willing to make fish and participate in, in telling this story. Because what we're doing is we're showing that if you care enough about the end result, you can work together, and you can make something beautiful. It's really that. It's really that simple. And that's that's where we are. That's where we are right now. I'm I'm, I'm really excited about what's happening next week. I'm also a little scared to death because you know uh, this is the birth of the second part of the child. That sounds odd, but I, mean, I can't say it's my second child, but, uh, <laughs> but, but um, I also, I also cannot thank all of the people who have just rallied around this basic idea. You know um, um, this has gone from, On a proposal with Ben Cobb uh, at Museum of Glass, Um, 75 people coming down, or 50, you know, glass artists coming down to make fish with us, you being invited, you know, others being invited to other studios. To now, I don't know, we'll probably have another 100 people from across the globe or more. I think in Japan, when we make fish, you should all tune in to the website, um, and you'll receive an invite if you register with Mark um, at Ava's Wild. Uh, In Japan, I think they have 13 different benches, and Hiroshi says, so how many fish do you think we need, Joe? And I said, well, I I don't know. And he goes, we have 13 different benches. We have 13 benches. We can make a lot of fish for you. (laughs) So I think the Japanese component of, of the school is going to be quite substantial.
0: That is so exciting. It is just, it is hopeful to think about people working in concert over these few days together across the globe to make something beautiful. You mentioned also um, citizen science, and we got to experience a little part of that together this last winter and in uh, the fall of 2020 um, into the winter of uh, 20 and 21. Um, working with folks in your home waters and, uh, the sock and the Skagit, um, with a, uh, a group called Glacier Peak Institute. Can you give us a little bit of a idea of what that collaboration looked like and how that ties into the living art and the citizen science piece of this?
1: Yes. So initially before COVID, we were supposed to take the show on the road, meaning that myself and Ben Cobb, Andy Lawrence, and some others were uh, scheduled to travel to Sweden last year to take part in the glass conference in Sweden. We were then going to make fish in different studios, another two studios in Sweden, two in Norway, uh, two in the UK. Um And then we were going to silver all of those fish, and we were working with the Nordnorsk Museum in Tromsø to exhibit a Scandinavian European school, which would then join the school here. Um, And we were working with uh, Celia's husband, Carl, who worked for the Department of Fisheries, managing... Um, or monitoring sea trout and Atlantic salmon populations in the, I believe the largest river in order, which is the Tana river. And uh, so I, I had spoken with uh, Chris Mayer from the Smithsonian uh, about doing a citizen science project, creating a citizen science project where we would collect um, DNA and we discussed, well, we'd worked on a project before um, in Tahiti Nine years before, and we talked about how the science had changed, and it was really easy to do and, and, and non-obtrusive. So we were set to do this uh, with uh, Carl and um, and uh, Indigenous people from uh, from Norway, uh, Sami people, and um, COVID hit, so we couldn't do it, and. I had received an invitation from the mayor of Darrington, Dan Rankin, to do a project with, to create a project with um, Glacier Peak Institute. Uh, so I, you know, I spoke to Dan and, and he put me in touch with his nephew, Oak, who I who I knew were good friends. And I said, Oak, what do you think? And he said, well, I, I think we can do this. So sure enough, uh, myself, Chris Mayer, and, and, um, and Joe Crane of Jonah Ventures, who they're the lab that's doing the DNA and cataloging all the information, they said, yeah, let, let's do this. And I said, well, we need, we need to get buy-in. so I spoke with Kirk Kramer, who is a retired Department of Fish and Wildlife, um, steelhead biologist for Region 4. And we were talking about this gadget. And, uh, and I said, do you think we can get a DNA scientist from the Department of Fish and Wildlife? And Sarah Brown found out what we were doing, and she's the head of environmental DNA for the state, and she said yes. So the four of us put together this this group of people. We had a host of meetings about the study that we would create that would allow for some sort of correlation between stream flow and environmental DNA. And for those of you listening, I will say this. I'm not a scientist. You know, yes, I have studied science and I've I've written a few scientific abstracts when I was studying psychology and biology, but I'm not a scientist. That said, um, it, it did help me in, in, in getting everybody together because we were able to create a study that would allow us over two years to determine if you can make a correlation between the, and the DNA that comes off of everything. So when you are standing in your house or you're sitting on a chair or you're walking through the glut or through the grass, you're always sloughing off a little of, a little of yourself is always coming off. And that goes into the environment and it can be collected. It's called environmental DNA. And, and uh, so we went through this program of, of describing what it is. And oak stepped up, big time. Carly Studley stepped up big time, um, you know, Glacier Peak, they were on it. Um, they put together, we, you know, myself and, and, uh, and Kurt picked the sampling stations in Oak and, um, they put together a program that lasted for three months, 40 days of sampling. We're doing another 40 next year and the data will be, um, you know, uh, evaluated and hopefully we'll have found out that, that we've made a difference but the real thing the real difference here is i didn't collect the dna you know mark you did you collected the little dna but the important thing is is that kids disadvantaged kids in rural areas who would not otherwise have the opportunity to understand that there is a life for them outside of where they are um and Would not have the ability to look at other things as potential directions for their lives had that opportunity. So they are they are quite literally contributing to the database of understanding at the Smithsonian, which then benefits the world. And you know, so to to be a a nine or twelve year old kid and understand, you know, once you understand that you're actually doing that it gives you a different sense of purpose, or I'd like to think it gives you a different sense of purpose. And then that information informs the entire performance, the entire process of what school is. So it really is, it's, it's emerging of, of science and, and community
0: and awareness. I love that it requires hands from the community and folks that are, um, not necessarily given that opportunity all the time. And I'm, I've become enamored of this phrase recently. Um, we all live downstream. And in thinking about that, not just as a physical river made of water, but of time, we are at a moment right now where the rest of human history is going to be affected and judge what we did at this moment. And so what I gleaned from coming on board with that project with you and filming a bit of that with kids from the Sauk Seattle tribe, um, with kids from Darrington um, who've experienced trauma and the joy that came into their eyes and spread across their faces and uh, extended into their parents as well um, from any and all, socio-political, sure. economic sides of the spectrum. Those people are deciding what's going to happen at the headwaters of this river of time we're in right now. And, and watching that joy and that sense of ownership and serenity come across these kids based on the uh, wonder of this place, this gorgeous very mysterious beautiful place that they live in that that was it for me that was the magic that was the reason to get involved and um by the way we do have a a short um piece about that and you can watch that up on our um youtube channel if you go to youtube and look up ava's wild that's the word save spelled backwards wild you can uh, find our channel and look up the glacier peak institute video it's really something to see um so First of all, Joe, thank you for bringing me into that. It was a a joy. Thank you for the ongoing and continuing work, uh, the ability to connect together here with this um, very cool uh, project that we're we're doing here together. So, Joe, with this notion of we all live downstream, we have some big problems we're facing here. Um, The Skagit, of course, is facing some big problems Um, the SOC by extension with its steelhead runs, but we've also got climate change and um, pollution and extracting too many resources that before we can replenish them, where does a person start? How, How does a person be a part of this bigger movement and, and take some agency right where they live, what's your prescription for that?
1: Wow. Uh, you know, to, to coin a phrase that, that is actually the, the title of another exhibit I, I have, which is actually at the Olympic National Park right now, it's called Conservation From Here, which is conservation starts wherever your ear is, right in front of you, right at your feet. And you have to be aware of what you're surrounded by and not take any of it for granted. Because when you wake up in the morning, you have a cup of coffee, you put cream in that coffee, or whatever, There had, that cow had to live on land that might have been a forest that was now cleared in this impervious surface. That That's a grass field. Is that a bad thing? It's not as bad as some other things. But the fact that the, the thing that I'm saying is, in order to sustain us, order to sustain humanity there is a there is a cost to the natural world and as we grow we have to create ways to sustain growth and I think right now without you know going dark um, I think we have to ask we have to review how how far we go I think we need to I think we need to make some really hard decisions um, you know you could People have asked me, so were we better off 50 years ago than we are now? Well, if I'm a steelhead fisherman, I'm going to say we were absolutely better off 50 years ago. There are a lot more steelhead around. There were a lot less people around. There was a lot more green space, you know. Uh, so I, it's, I think, I think conservation starts, you know, and awareness starts wherever you are, you know, and. Whatever is around you. I, I have a wetland in my backyard that is protected by CIPR, you know State Environmental Protection Act. There are red leg frogs in there. There's an endangered species in my backyard, and I'm responsible for not doing anything that might impact them. That's my here. What's your here, you know?
0: I just absolutely um, feel that and that resonates completely with me. You are in the process of, you're right in the middle of this vision that, um, is coming through you and now other people I'm included in that and grateful for it, but let's go a little further. Um, how do you envision sustainable collaboration amongst people around the world working to save what we love together? What's your Sistine Chapel kind of version of this, of this vision uh, what does that look like?
1: Well, I think we need to get in touch with the Pope and ask him if he will allow us to hang the symbol of Christianity in the Sistine Chapel. I think hanging the school in the Sistine Chapel is a great place to start because it's symbolic of uh, feeding, you know, a population. And if the fish go away, we don't feed the population. So how do we find, you know, how do we find an equilibrium? And I mean that seriously, and I mean it figuratively. So we, we have to learn how to integrate our understanding. Um, and uh, it's difficult. It's really difficult because I recognize that people who have a different worldview than I might have are not bad people. And that their reality is shaped by a completely different worldview. So if you say, okay, they have a different worldview. This is a fact to them. It may be based in some other logic than I'm used to using, but they believe this. So how do we believe the same thing? How do we come up with believing the same thing? And I think if we strive to to do that in our work, you know, um, and I mean, as a filmmaker, as an artist, um, I think the ability to sustain collaborations over a long period of time are positive, uh, are, are possible. Um, and I think, I think there's a constant tweaking of, of the vernacular between, you know, the people that you involve in the collaboration as time progresses, as, as it, as it progresses generationally. Um, and, um, and as
0: awareness changes. Can you speak a little bit about collaborating with Indigenous artists, scientists, and elders, and what that process has been like? And also, how critical do you feel a continuation of that kind of collaboration and even a, an escalation of that type of collaboration with Indigenous wisdom is from here on forward?
1: Well, I feel really fortunate that when I when I moved here and began fishing on the Skagit and the Sauk and the Stillaguamish, that I became friends with uh, two biologists in particular that work for the Skagit System Cooperative. Um, we had a meeting. You and I had a meeting and went fishing with Scott Schuyler And that was precipitated by my friendship with a close friend of Scott's, and um, his name is Keith Wyman. And, you know, um, people who love fish, people who are fish people, are the same in their soul. They're the same, right? And when you remove, when you create a situation in which you remove any of the other distraction, people can communicate. And, I, and for me, um, the same stories and the same desires to protect fish, to have fish, to protect the land, to, you know, to celebrate the land, to worship it are the same in me as I hear related by somebody like Scott Schuyler, for example, who in that, you know, when we were in the boat, he says, you know, he said, when I was a kid, I was at a, you know, I was was living in a camp on, on Cockerham Island when I was 16 years old in fishing for fish six months, fishing for salmon six months out of the year, and I could do it, you know. And I mean, let's face it, anybody who is affected by fish in that way, and there's at least two of us on this call, given the opportunity at 16 to give your whole life to fishing, you would do it. So, so I guess, I guess the thing is, for me, I, Do not want to do anything other than create an opportunity through this project and through my work to allow for everybody to say what they think. Because ultimately, if we're making something beautiful, people are there because they want something beautiful in return. And that may sound hokey. This school of fish, the real school of fish, is a gorgeous, beautiful, life-sustaining thing whether it's sustaining your soul through the making of art or sustaining your, your, your life, uh, you know, your true life through sustenance um, and the presence of the fish indicate a health of the planet. Um, I, I think that working with, you know, working with Salmon Nation, working with, you know, um, Lawrence Joseph, Uh, working with the Sauk tribe. I I received the Ford Motor Car Fellowship to take part in the archaeological project there 15 years ago. Um, At a very core level, we're all the same. And I, I want everybody to understand through this project and through the opportunity to speak freely, that we're all the same and that we can work together to make a difference. And, and, having that blessing, you know, being welcomed into these, these, you know, usual and accustomed areas that are upper Skagit or sock and having, you know, tribal members willing to participate, willing participants, yes, come and visit us and we're going to come and visit you. I just, I mean, it's just like working with the scientist It's right. So there's this emotional, historical valuation of human presence and how we can go forward together. I mean, I see it on a 55,000 foot view level. I don't necessarily see it on a three foot level. And I think that um, as long as I'm working towards allowing the 55,000 foot level to act as an umbrella for the rest of these projects that I do, then how it needs to get disseminated can be done honestly by the people that are actively working. Does that make sense? Working in a, in a, in a given area.
0: Absolutely. I think it's a beautiful place to park it for today. Um, this is of course an ongoing and living piece of art, a working project that encompasses multiple mediums, um, and a scientific approach. And, um, What isn't necessarily a scientific approach is the following three questions I'm going to ask you. But everybody gets them, and everybody's got a very fun and different response to them. So here's the first one. If you were in the path of, let's say, one of these beloved rivers really flooded and and your, your house was about to be taken away with it, we're pretending here. What is the one physical thing that you would pull out of the house before the flood took it away my wife not including you know not including loved ones including including pets but the one physical thing if you could only take one
1: wow one physical thing i don't know it's a really good question one physical thing (laughs) If, if my house was in the in the path of a river what is the one physical thing i would take I would probably that's a good that's a, I can't come up with an answer I mean the, the immediate answer was my wife um, I don't know my car keys so I could drive the car out of there but maybe I, I don't I don't know I need to be able to get to where I never I need to go so maybe the car
0: pra- practical for an artist and uh, beautiful in its own way um, how, how about now in, in a metaphysical sense what are the two? spiritual things or the two composite things that make Joe, Joe that you would take with you?
1: What are the two things that, that I would take with me? Well, my sense of humor and my patience.
0: Excellent. And I can attest to both. And, uh, lastly, is there anything that you'd let get washed away, be purified in that great deluge?
1: Yeah, I, I would want I would want to let all the regret of not doing a good enough job on a host of things that I, I always say to myself, you know, you could have done a better job. I'd like to let that Catholic guilt go away. You know, I don't know that it's easy to do that, but I'd like the Catholic guilt
0: to go away. <laughs> Fair enough. I'm sure you are not alone out there. Um, okay, so if you would give us the, the lineup uh, briefly for next week again, and uh, what are we going to see and how do we find you? So uh,
1: at 10 o'clock, everything is in Pacific daylight time. So, um, and and I don't remember all the times, but uh, I think we, we kick off uh, with a pre-conference welcome to the project with uh, Salmon Nation, and then a screening of the wild. I think we're having a small panel. Are you monitoring the panel? Yes, absolutely. And then uh, the following day, we work with with Urban Glass in Brooklyn, and they're going to have a drawing workshop with uh, some kids, and we are going to draw fish. And then uh, Mike, Jess, and the team at Urban Glass will make some salmon in the glass studio. Then we will go to StarWorks, North Carolina, and Star, StarWorks Craft Center is uh, our host for the entire project, uh, for this virtual project. And then we'll make fish with the team there. Uh, that team is headed by Joe Grant. Uh, Joe will actually act as the MC along with myself through all, for the entire length of, of the gas conference. The following day is our big day. So we start out um, at five in the morning with James Devereux and uh, Catherine Husky at uh, Devereux and Husky in Wiltshire. And they will be joined by um, Peter Landale of the Missing Salmon Alliance and a couple of other surprise guests who we will learn. You'll have to tune in and see. Uh, and they will make fish. Um, and then from there, we will go to the Museum of Glass, where you and I will be there with Oakley Brooks from um, from uh, the Wild Salmon Center. Hopefully, Scott's going to be able to make it down. He'll bring some people with him, and we'll squeeze some fish. Uh, and then the, the MOG team, and that includes uh, Gabe Feenan and... and um, Oh, Ben Cobb and, and Sarah. Oh, God. Anyhow, it's a big day. And then from there, we'll go on to um, to Osaka, Japan. No, 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 no. Then we go to Australia and uh, Canterbury University, uh, National University of Australia, Canterbury um, where we'll make fish with Nadezh Nadezh and her team, uh, and then we'll roll into Osaka, Japan, and Hiroshi Amano, who who is a great glassmaker, will make. Uh, he'll do a demonstration of a koi, and then we'll go ahead, and his team will be making um, salmon for the project during the you know continuously during the two hour demo. Then the following day, which is Saturday, that or Friday, the twenty-first, is it right? Friday, I can't remember. But anyhow, on the twenty-first, um, we will start out with uh, Celia Skoglund in Troms in Norway, and she will be making fish with her team at Blast. And then her husband Carl will um, st- will show different videos about. Uh, Salmon conservation and and salmon monitoring in Norway, Atlantic salmon and and, uh, sea trout in Norway. And then we'll end up in uh, Antrim, Ireland, with Spencer and Benefield and Spencer Glass, and we'll make some fish there. Uh, And they will show some films of the river bush and salmon conservation in uh, Northern Ireland. And then we finish with our very own Salmon Nation spiritual leader. I say that with love and sarcasm because she is wonderful. Donna Morton and the head of the Missing Salmon Alliance, uh, Peter Landell. And we're going to see a special movie, a preview of a movie, um, which will, this will be the first time it's ever been shown of Salmon in Hot Water. And, um, It's, um, I can't remember there, there are two special guests that are going to show up for that. So you can go to the website, the salmon school website, you can go to the events page and, um, there's a section there where people can donate. Um, we will have the live links probably by the end of the day tomorrow where you can, um, sign up and participate in the, uh, in the project. And, uh, it's, it's, we'd love to have all of you. So the website is www.thesalmonschool.com and, um, Mark will be sending this, this video out along with a link to the page and a link for registration.
0: Yep. We will have all of this uh, registration info. This is all free and it will be appearing on our social media channels uh, at Ava's Wild at the wild film. And uh, you'll also if you want to sign up for our newsletter, we'll be uh, distributing it there. And all you have to do for that is go to avaswild.com. That's the word save spelled backwards, wild.com. And click on the connect button and sign up for the newsletter. And you'll be in the community. Joseph Rossano, you're a good friend. You're an amazing artist. And I am so grateful and thrilled to be part of this in a small way. And I can't wait to see what's ahead on the trail as we continue down it together. So uh, thank you for uh, being with us today and I can't wait for next few days of incredible um, sights from all around the world and uh, such a such a delight to be connected can't wait to see you in the coming days and more to come down the trail and so long for now
1: thank you, thanks everybody for tuning in and, and um, I'm very honored
0: How do you say what you love how do you say what you love thank you for listening to say what you love if you like what you're hearing you can help keep these conversations coming your way by giving us a rating on apple podcasts you can check out photos and links from this episode at avaswild.com while there you can join our growing community by subscribing to our newsletter you'll get exclusive offers on wild salmon shipped to your door and notifications about upcoming guests and more great content on the way. That's at avaswild.com. That's the word save, spelled backwards, wild.com. This episode was produced by Tyler White and edited by Patrick Troll. Original music was created by Whiskey Class. This podcast is a collaboration between Ava's Wild Stories and Salmon Nation and was recorded on the homelands of the Duwamish people. We'd like to recognize these lands and waters and their significance for the peoples who lived and continue to live in this region, whose practices and spiritualities were and are tied to the land and the water, and whose lives continue to enrich and develop in relationship to the land, waters, and other inhabitants today.